Are you Laura Palmer? Hello and welcome to the apparently final edition of The Lodgers. As boo! Boo! <laughs> it's too early to boo. I haven't even said my name yet. I don't want it to be the final episode. Boo! Anyway, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> as always, as ever, I'm Simon Howell. Rudely, that was Kate Renabon. Yeah, well, I can't help it. It's how I feel. I just, I don't want this to be the last episode of The Lodgers. But sadly, Simon and I have lives and obligations and other things we have to do, and we can no longer dwell in the, the wonderful, crazy fairyland that has been the summer of Twin Peaks. So, yeah, it's this it's, must it's be our last episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we've, we've managed to kind of spread this out for as long as we could. But the show ended, what? It's not been six months. No, but you September. said it's six months since it's been a few months. It's been a few yeah. months since uh, since it Look, ended. So I think it is time. The podcast fulfilled its basic obligation of being a way for us to get free merch, and now we we've, we've ah, got that's we've true. got the merch, and now there's no more reason for it to exist. <laughs> well, and and of course the, with the other uh, the other major reason for having the podcast, and this is a genuine reason which was to be able to invite really amazing people to come and have conversations with us, which is not normally a thing that we uh, always get to do about Twin Peaks. So that was the other major reason. And I think Simon and I are pretty excited to say that this final episode was a very good example of getting good people to come and talk to us. Yeah, I mean, I would extend that further and say I rarely have conversations with people in reality. Uh, so really, the podcast was just a way for me to uh, smuggle interesting people into my life. Uh, without having to have them deal with facing me in reality. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know this by now if you're looking at the show notes, but this week for our final episode, after considerable uh, scheduling mishaps and uh, and planning and plotting, we were able to get uh, not only uh, preeminent David Lynch scholar and, uh, and, and an author, Dennis Lim, uh, we were also able to get novelist man about town uh, general wonderkind tom mccarthy um not to be confused with the writer director of the cobbler but in fact a uh, a wonderful talent in and of his, uh, in and of himself um tom mccarthy the uh yeah i mean i i i had no idea what i i had some idea what to expect separately uh from them but i had no idea what to expect when their forces were to combine uh the result was a, a pretty a pretty broad spanning conversation that I think uh, everyone who has been able to put up with us so far will enjoy. Um, yeah. I mean, I, so people have some sense of how this whole thing came about. Uh, so I think I've mentioned this on the podcast in the past actually, but I was very lucky to get to know Dennis when he, he's now taught, I think twice, uh, two separate years at Harvard as a kind of guest um, professor uh, and I took a couple of classes of his a few years ago, which were fabulous, fabulous classes. Uh, and so I was lucky enough to get to know Dennis a little bit, and uh, we've kept in touch. And of course, both share a like deep and abiding love of, of Lynch uh, and Twin Peaks. And so I have been trying to ask him to come on the podcast for a while. But of course, as you may uh, guess from his bio, running the Lincoln Center and being a film programmer and a critic and being all over the world sort of every second weekend, it was it took a little bit of time to be able to get Dennis on. Uh, so 
but that's fine. We were more than happy to wait uh, until this point so we could have Dennis on. And we had wanted to have a second guest on. And uh, Dennis suggested Tom McCarthy, who, I, you know, I'm not sure if, if people who have listened to this podcast as Twin Peaks people will necessarily be familiar with Tom's work. But, um, you know, Tom has been, I think, nominated for the Man Booker at least several twice, times, yeah. uh, if I'm not several times. Yeah, for his various novels. And the, the work is really fantastic. And if you're interested in Lynch, uh, like from a sort of formal perspective or, you know, this fascination with technology, with kind of like modern life filtered through technology, any of these things, Tom's work is going to be very interesting to you as well. And he's he's long followed Lynch's career and is a very big fan of Lynch. Um, and so I highly recommend finding uh, books like Remainder, Sea, Satin Island. I think I opened my dissertation with uh, a discussion of Remainder, actually. I really love that book. So we were, we were thrilled when Dennis suggested that we asked Tom and we were even more thrilled when Tom said yes I was not uh, fully expecting that to happen so we were so thrilled to have uh, both Dennis and Tom come on and talk to us about Twin Peaks and yeah it was a really fabulous conversation yeah it, it went really well I'm pleased with it um, the since we're gonna launch into this and it's gonna take over like the giant bulk of the episode I just wanted to say one more time uh, do check out uh, Sorted Cinema the fine outlet that hosts us and uh, makes this podcast possible uh, those of you who don't run podcasts, uh, which is, you know, 30% of you at this point, um, <laughs> like, don't understand necessarily that there's like hosting and logistics and costs and headaches yeah. involved. And like it, you know, it's it's been very helpful for the show to have a stable home and a hosting place and all that, all that jazz. So that's been very, yes. very helpful. And um, uh, I, I, I will pre I, I, I haven't done any writing for them over the last little while but perhaps i will um in the relatively near future uh so do keep an eye out for that but regardless uh props to them and props to uh to everyone over there especially ricky uh who you'll know from other other things anyway uh that's enough ado so let's skip on over to the reason you're actually here which is mostly to listen to dennis and tom talk so uh <laughs> I can make that work. Right. You're back on the Lodgers, and we have with us two extremely special guests for quite literally our ultimate episode. Uh, first up, we have film programmer and writer Dennis Lim. He's the author of part of the Icon series, David Lynch, The Man from Another Place. He's also the director of programming at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Our second guest is Tom McCarthy. He's the author of four novels, including Remainder, Sea, Men in Space, and his latest is Satin Island. He's also an accomplished literary critic, and uh, we're very excited to have you both, so I wanted to just take a moment to acknowledge that. To open the floor, and whoever wants to go first on this is uh, more than welcome to, both Dennis and Tom, you've, you've both written about and spoken of how Lynch is perhaps the, the preeminent artist of our time. And you've both, you know, used a lot of, of time and column inches and in your case, Dennis, an entire book on this. But I, I guess what I, where I would like to segue with that is like, as you're watching the return as, as we're now calling it, did anything about the experience of watching it surprise you based on your extensive foreknowledge of, of David Lynch and whoever wants to start on that can, can go ahead. I was go? surprised at how contemporary it was. Usually when 
you know, it's like when a band do a reunion 25 years after they were good. It's a kind of, it's usually a bit embarrassing <laughs> or it's a nostalgia tour. It's a grubby kind of um, cashing in on something that's no longer relevant. But but this was anything but that. It just seems so incredibly contemporary, um, for example, in a political sense. I mean, it was uncannily timely that it depicted the FBI coming to rescue the world against evil at, at the very moment when America and the rest of the world is hoping that Comey and Miller are going to do exactly that, <laughs> you know, or in its depiction of um, maybe in a more formal sense, in it's very sophisticated and very up to the moment understanding of networks and digital culture and distributed um, media. Yeah. Yeah. Similar. Um, I would say related to this the idea of it being, very contemporary is how completely devoid of nostalgia it is, how completely allergic to nostalgia. Um, and I think it's quite a, you know, it's quite a self-conscious work. I think it very much ends up being about what it means to revisit the past, um, as is true of all, you know, revivals. In terms of what surprised me, I think there was just this sense of following this, this thing, this enormous thing, this thing that you knew would go on for 18 weeks. And I think for me, the size of that canvas was, it felt like something new to me. Um, you know, it didn't feel like an 18 hour series. Um, it felt like just this enormous work. Lynch is essentially doubling the running time of, almost doubling the running time of all the films that he's made. He's only made 10 features before this. Um, and this is an 18 hour film to see what he do does with a canvas of this size um, was, was really exciting, um, I think mean, week to week. And I think it's such an uncompromising ending. I think we will talk more about that as well. But I think um, I think that the final hour is one of the most radical things he's he's ever done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's any number of things we could pick up in there uh, already. I mean, I'm I'm kind of fascinated about this question of the narrative or lack of narrative structure of this 18-hour marathon, and uh, and maybe we can loop back to that. But I, I wanted to pick up on the question of what uh, Tom pointed towards there with this idea of the show's relationship to networks, distributed kind of digital culture, because um, I actually think this is something that I haven't seen as much of a critical response to in relation to the show, which is particularly the way that the show is so formally interested in, I don't know, engaging... <laughs> something like even the streaming format of the way it's going to be uh, seen by so many people, right? I mean, this is a new thing for Lynch as well. I mean, I think Inland Empire famously is his transition to digital video, um, and he uses digital video in very interesting ways there. But in, in a very obvious way, it, it's quite different than what he's doing in The Return, which is simply sort of crisper um, and sharper in some senses than what's going on in Inland Empire. But in The Return, there is such a sort of like awareness of this problem of streaming as the format through which people are going to see it. And I think Lynch, in this sort of genius mode, is constantly playing with that, right? I mean, we have all of these things where there is um, almost like buffering in the, in the purple room where the image is going back and forth. Or we have uh, dropped frames, which in, in, a, in a story that kind of like reiterates exactly this point here, I had to wait until I had the DVDs in front of me, the Blu-rays in front of me, to be able to confirm that this was actually something Lynch had intended and wasn't simply a result of the way Showtime had encoded it badly or something. But in the, the forest sequence, I think in one of the later episodes when they go to Jackrabbit's palace, there's there's plenty of shots where the, the frame rate is just sort of dropping and it doesn't look very good. Um, or we have weird things like the, the door handle jumping when uh, Tammy comes to visit Lynch. Um, 
anyway, there's so many examples like this. But I mean, I, I was fascinated to kind of like hear what you guys thought about this. If this represents something new in the way that Lynch is putting these images together for him or not, or how it kind of plays into his larger sensibility in the return. Well, I, I think yes and no. I mean, I think Lynch has always been interested in in interference and in glitches and, and in kind of circuits. So if you think of a film like... Um, like 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 uh, Wild at Heart, you know, you have a whole network of people communicating over phone lines, you know, saying these kind of code words to each other, and that gets communicated somewhere else, and then someone else passes on a token. I mean, there's always you're always in this inside this kind of media architecture of relays of of, of intercoms, telephones, transmissions, pickups, tapes, radios. And they're always quite glitch-ridden. There's that wonderful bit in, in um, Lost Highway when one of the stories kind of interferes with the other story, the other reality, over the radio. You know, the, the, the Getty character starts getting a headache when the radio station come, comes on. And there's kind of, you know, Lynch loves glitches. They're just static. <laughs> um, and, and I suppose when you get to Inland Empire and he moves to digital, and, this, and then this really comes into play in, in The Return, there are so many different kind of manifest, beautiful aesthetic manifestations of that that that, that a digital environment offers, like buffering, like like kind of you know that those kind of glitches, which which are incredibly aesthetic. You know, they have their own aesthetic kind of quality, and I think he he amplifies them to the full. But I think he's doing something. I, I don't think it's just for effect. I, I think yeah. it's it's a whole set of reality fields. Um, overlapping, disrupting each other, and 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 this is the way they do it. I mean, Lynch is a kind of media totalitarian. The world, the world is media, and media is the world. And this is the kind of you know not just the texture and the surface along across which things play out, but it's the whole architecture and cosmos that that we inhabit. The gods watch film in in the return. You know, time is film. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I think it's a continuation of what he's been doing and, and, and maybe most obviously of Inland Empire. There's always been this kind of sly sense of like medium awareness, medium specificity with Lynch. You know, I mean, the Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me like, famously opens with that television set being destroyed because you know, um, he's moving on to a new, a new format, a new medium. Um, and I think this um, is, is, is very much in keeping with, with, with Inland Empire working with this this standard definition consumer grade video um digital video for the first time and really reveling in in the texture of the medium uh, as a formal and an aesthetic element um and i think he's certainly very aware even though he refers to it as an 18 hour film that most people i think most people did consume it um on their computers i certainly did i went yeah. back between watching it on my laptop and on on a television um, and I still haven't had the, ex except for the first two episodes, which I was lucky enough to see in Cannes on the big screen, I haven't had the experience of watching this as as cinema, which is, you know, what Lynch, Lynch describes it as, even though it hasn't really done, hasn't really shown that way, except for um, last week in, in New York at MoMA, where they had um, screenings of all 18 hours um, over three days. Did anyone else feel, because I know we all had the opportunity to watch at least some of it on physical media, as I was watching the Blu-rays, um, I was happy to see the images in high definition because, especially in Canada, the, um, the, the, the streaming quality was not great. I can't speak to the rest of the world. But it also kind of felt like a betrayal to have the show sort of chunked out 
on these high definition yeah. physical discs and like having to get up and change the disc and just have <laughs> it have it suddenly appear in perfect quality on my large television screen. Did, did, did anyone else feel like the physical media version of of the return was in some way kind of wrong? <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, certainly stream flow yeah. is it's so much part of the aesthetic of, of the series. You know, there's that amazing episode, I think it's number eight, streaming electricity out of their heads down to earth. And it, it, it's almost like, like, like the flow of data over a, over a fiber optic cable and, and, and then the kind of slowness and the, and the buffers through which that comes in. I mean, it seemed exactly the right medium to, to watch it on. It, it did seem oddly kind of retro, you know, getting up to put, to put a new CGI. I completely see what you mean, yes. Yeah. And there's been, you know, this really, I think, kind of pointless, but, but in some ways fascinating discussion about whether this is, whether this belongs to film or to television. Yes. Yeah. Sort of unfolding on Twin Peaks Twitter or whatever, like is people are putting it on their lists of best films, lists of best television. Well, you know, what is it? And what is the best way to consume it? I mean, would you watch this as an 18 hour film? I mean, is that really, is that optimal? Is that possible? Um, and I didn't, you know, I had this odd experience of watching that there was, I was traveling over the summer and I was just, I would watch three or four episodes at a time and then, you know, go step away for, for, for a month or so and then catch up. Um, I, so I think we, you know, I'm not sure what, what it would be like to actually rewatch the whole thing. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like whether, whether, you know, whether you think this question of whether it belongs to film or, or to television is relevant. I think the temporality of watching it in kind of, uh, you know, it was released once a week and then, and, and I, like many other Lynch addict um, friends, would in between each week, you know, go and rewatch back episodes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you know that kind of becomes part of the experience so you're catching up and then and then it, you, you, you know it becomes this immersive thing in which in which the archive kind of comes back into the present present tense i mean he creates these or, or it creates these pauses which are somehow integral that's another form of buffering i guess yeah it, that made me think as well of um you know when dennis you wrote in your book about the reception to Mulholland drive and how it seemed to mark uh, this turning point where people started to view, at least in the in the case of Mulholland Drive, they kind of viewed it as a, a puzzle movie, um, as opposed to his previous movies that just didn't make any sense. <laughs> Whereas suddenly there was something to make sense of, and I, people sort of filled in these. There was something about the design of Mulholland Drive where uh, where people were able to take the things that didn't necessarily make linear or you know. Uh, structural sense, and then kind of fill in the gaps themselves and create these these new narratives. And that was maybe even doubly so with with Inland Empire. I think there's there's something maybe to the idea that that forced gap of time that people had between each episode here. I th I think that was sort of I think it kind of acted as another way for people to create that connective tissue where mm. we were and we we did a weekly podcast where you know every week we were thinking, well, when's Audrey showing up and like. <laughs> or, or you know whatever you know burning question was was happening that week and and sort of I I know at least for my part I was always breathlessly speculating about you know well well what are they going after with what they've done with this character and and when is is this actor showing up or, or since they announced the cast in advance like what will this actor possibly be doing here will they be playing a, a recast version of a previous character I'm 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 interested in the in this in the idea that will be lost in in a in a future rewatch as an 18 hour movie or three, six hour movies or wh whatever you'll do of being able to fill in that narrative space. And maybe the way people did with Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire. 
Yeah, I, think, I, I also think it's, it's you know, Mulholland Drive is sort of a, a solvable puzzle movie. I think you can sort of like come up with an interpretation, you know, of what happens more or less um, mm -hmm. um, if you're a remotely active viewer. I think it's the, the return especially is, is, I think, very perverse in, in terms of playing these narrative games. I mean, there are so many red herrings and dead ends and, you know, things that are simply alluded to and like very straight, you know, all those roadhouse scenes with these characters who are never seen, who are discussed in, <laughs> in great detail at great length. Um, and, you know, the Audrey thing is, is, is another example. Um, and I think that's, it's, it was, it, I didn't partake, um, I really didn't um, read very much. Um, and I only came uh, back to your podcast, I, I, you know, listened to a few episodes after the end. I, I really didn't, um, deliberately did not really want to, uh, it's funny, people talk about Twin Peaks really creating this community, you know, this like, this interpretive community that formed around Twin Peaks and, and ushering in a particular kind of fan culture. And for the return um, to, to emerge into this particular environment where it's just instant analysis, you know, like overnight recaps and like endless threads on, on, on Reddit. Um, and I, I stayed away from that for the most part, so I can't really weigh in on, um, I have to say that a lot of that also tends to annoy me a little bit, this sort of like this, this, this over-interpretation yeah. uh, of, of, of Lynch. Um, I think maybe, you know, having, spent a lot of time thinking about his work and, and hearing his voice in my head about this, like, you know, this, this, this aversion to explanations and explanations being a kind of way of shutting down meaning. And, and um, yeah. it, it was, it was sort of a, a way of like inoculating myself against all these, like, you know, fan theories and multiple takes. Um, so I feel, I still, yeah. still I'm, I'm still processing the return uh, and, and, and um, would like to leave it that way, even though obviously we're, we're having this discussion now. Well, I mean, I, there's lots of things we can add to that, and I still, we can probably talk about this more in relation to a future point, but I rewatched maybe, I think we rewatched episodes 13 through 17 last night or something, and I still find it mind-boggling. I think I've seen the whole thing three times through now, how utterly resistant it is to to our drive to try to make sense of it. I mean, I think, I, I, don't, I don't read it out of a kind of theorizing fan drive to make sense of everything, but even just keeping track of basic plot information is so difficult in this show. And I and we'll, I think maybe we can leave that and come back to this kind of like built-in ambiguity of it, because you hinted towards it as well there, Dennis. But um, I had a couple of points I wanted to add. I mean, I think about the question of television versus film and the the debates that have been happening about this online and in the critical circles. I mean, I think what's so interesting about even just the way you guys are talking about it is there would have already been such a split between the people who watched it as it was airing on television, like maybe Tom and Simon and I did, and, and we're going back and rewatching them in between and, and sort of having this kind of forced temporal experience of the show um, that, you know, only existed in that moment. I mean, I think if you, if you didn't watch it when it was on television and you're just picking it up now and able to watch it in order, you're going to have a fundamentally different experience of it than that versus people who saw it at MoMA maybe for the first time. <clears throat> and I think why that matters is that I think what the show is very aware of, and maybe what Lynch is playing with as well, with the kind of formal modulation of the of the uh, streaming format and everything, is the idea that, in a way that's I think very contemporary, there it's not you can't say that there is a kind of like definitive text of Twin Peaks: The Return. I mean, I think it is if you were watching it on a laptop versus a television versus a movie screen, it, it's such a difficult kind of object to 
to say, well, this was this episode or this was that episode. This is what tends to kind of underwrite some of this hysteria that's happening now about categorization. Like why people are so feeling the need to kind of name it as either television or film or to kind of give it a very clear status because I don't think the show ever had a clear status. And I, and I think it's, it matters why people are trying to name it as one or the other, but I, I don't think the show, I don't think Lynch ever had some clear idea that it was going to be one or another, despite the fact that he's calling it an 18-hour film. He was also giving directions to people to, to get very close to their laptop and watch it with headphones. And I mean, so he knows how people are going to watch it. I mean, again, the formal quality of the show obviously indicates that he knows that it wasn't going to be only watched on a movie screen. Um, so anyway, that was the one thing I wanted to add about that. Um, but I think the other point I wanted to make, and maybe we can start moving a little more into the, the narrative question that Dennis brought up at the beginning here, is when Tom was talking about part eight there and this idea of the kind of stream of data of the show, and it, maybe it feels a little more natural to watch it as a kind of data flow rather than these hard physical objects. I think one of the things that I find so fascinating uh, about The Return, and there is a connection to Inland Empire as well here, but in um, The Return is the idea that you get the sense that maybe digital editing or the possibilities of digital editing are very present in the return. And the idea that Lynch is repeating scenes, he's reversing scenes, scenes like digital images here seem to exist in a kind of uh, tension always with themselves, right? I mean, it's it's never guaranteed that they're going to follow in a linear way. They sort of come back. They are, are next to each other always. I, I don't know. And this to me seems to have a very important kind of like role in the narrative here, right? I mean, the idea that the narrative is nonlinear, it's not classical, we're not dealing with a kind of balanced universe where we have a, a disruption of the narrative world at the beginning that will then be closed at the end. It's very much the opposite of that. And I, I don't know, that's a very general prompt, but we can, we can sort of talk about whatever people are interested in talking about narrative here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's definitely the way Lynch's narratives work, that they're, they're clearly not linear. And, and, a kind of detective-like puzzle-solving approach to them is 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 limited. Is only going to take you so far and not not far enough. And yup, there are many ways as we could in which we could see that as symptomatic of of digital culture. I mean, there's a kind of architecture of information storage. There are kind of you know, bits of information here and other bits there and they're linked, but they're not activated until a certain channel or vector is or connection is made. And then it kind of flows through, you know, almost like bytes and bits around a circuit board. But at the same time, you know, Finnegan's Wake operates in a very similar way. And this is 1939, right? This is way before the internet. So, so I, I, I think, you know, I think it's not just, um, it, I, I don't think it's just a comment on digital culture. And it's interesting that, I mean, sure, in 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 The Return, there is a lot of digital culture. You know, there are, there are a lot of modems and flashing screens and, and, and so on. But there's also this, this obsession with radio and with records and with silent film and stop animation. Um, so I think there's this kind of hyper presence of, of, of all media ever you know? yeah. um and and so so we have to kind of think about it quite quite kind of cross historically yeah, yeah. Or, or or everything is kind of simultaneous all media is kind of simultaneously and then lynch you know his own kind of year zero moment zero which which he pretty much you know centers the whole thing around in in episode eight is is the splitting of the atom you know, um, this, I, I guess we could see that as a moment in media, but it's also a moment in, in just in technology and science and history. And 
and and it's the point for him you know within the the kind of cosmic structure of the of the return it's the point at which evil is born and, and bob is put into the world but it's also formally it's the moment of atomization right i mean the the, the narrative works kind of atomically and subatomically this this endless it's kind of Deleuzean. There, there are whatever assemblage there is, is is deconstructed and reconfigured in sub assemblages. Which yeah. so all those scenes in the roadhouse where you get kind of girls scratching themselves or talking and bits of plot that they're almost like substrata of, you know, of maybe an Audrey or you know Audrey is yeah. an assemblage that the girls are a sub assemblage of that assemblage. It's very it's very atomic, right? So I I don't know. I think there's lots of of, of particular kind of technological or mediatic phenomena that we could attribute it to but but none of those kind of ex, you know contains the whole kind of structural yeah. logic there. Tom is very right to, and I feel like I'm getting too caught up in the digital stuff as well but I feel like he's very right to point out that this isn't the kind of structuring questions here are not only the sort of like image the digital image ordering and the possibilities therein but also this idea that both Lynch and uh, the editor Dwayne Dunham kind of talk about very regularly in interviews which is the idea of a sort of emotional logic of the show and like and an emotional logic that isn't necessarily grounded in anybody's subjectivity right it isn't necessarily a character's emotional logic instead it's this idea of the way that they would talk about it where they would i think they would sort of code uh, sequences with this sort of different emotional kind of color system on the on the boards and then they would edit according to this and on rewatch I find it very funny to think about this idea of emotional logic because you would expect therefore that this would lead to a kind of balance right that you'd be moving between sort of like happy sad shocking um, horrifying any number of things but that often isn't the case in the episodes. Instead, it's that the episodes as a whole almost feel like kind of emotional, different emotional spaces, right? I mean, you have episodes that are sort of very humorous, a little lighter, uh, and then all of a sudden you have episodes that are sort of um, really hard to take, right? I mean, I think this if, if they're talking about emotional modulation and putting together these episodes, I think what you get is very much Lynch and Frost kind of beating you over the head with very upsetting sort of sets of things, whether that be sort of violence against women, particularly in a certain episode, or death and loss in another episode. Um, anyway, so I think that was what I wanted to say. Uh, I, I, I agree. I don't think Lynch is a, is a natural storyteller, but he is very interested in how narratives operate, I think. It's just this vibe. How do you continue to exist longer in this in this world? And I think what The Return does with duration is really quite remarkable and, and singular. I don't really think I've seen duration used this way certainly not in television even and not really even in cinema when you think of you know the use when you when you talk of things like slow cinema you, you tend to think of you know Tarkovsky or you tend to think of more like observational you know observationally motivated like long takes um there is a very strange and I think particular use of duration in, in the return I mean he this was green lighted as a nine hour series that he essentially you know, he didn't write more material. He just asked them to give him double the running time so that he could literally just take his time. Um, and I think duration has, a, a, it's a source of, of comedy in in, yeah. in many scenes. It's a, it's a source of the uncanny as well. I think, it, you know, it, it allows for repetitions, as we pointed out. Um, and I think, you know, just, I've been rewatching them sort of non-sequentially, just picking out one episode or another, and just, just seeing how long it takes for some things to, to, to play out um, in, in, in these episodes is, uh, is fascinating. Something that was brought up many episodes ago on our podcast, I forget by who, maybe Kate, you can tell me, 
you know, in the era of Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, especially, there's uh, a lot of strong uh, moments of empathy and deep emotion in those films. And of course, in the straight story as well. And there might be a sense in the return where there's sort of a retreat from that, that may or may not have to do with the, the absence of um, Mary Sweeney as a, as a collaborator. Um, but I, I would be curious, especially uh, from Dennis, um, to, to hear more about like how, how you perceive um, the return and its handling of emotion and how much that's foregrounded or not foregrounded compared to his re- other recent work. I think the emotional, you know, for me, the emotion, the emotional aspect of the return, I think very much has to do with um, mortality. Um, you know, so much of it is about aging. Um, it's about death. And, you know, this is the point I was making about duration. I think one of the reasons it, it, it some of these scenes take so long is because they are you know, reasons to, to linger with these yeah. people who are at the end of their lives. I mean, there's the number of, of calls that the log lady makes to hawk you know and um uh it, it's it's really quite something to think about he, he was able to get to all these people in most cases you know many cases um approaching the end of their lives um harry dean stanton and Kathleen colson and, and uh, miguel ferrer um that to me is sort of the most of, uh maybe the most obvious sort of emotional aspect of the return uh tom as as our as our resident novelist on this podcast there's one particular aspect of the return that I've just been kind of like vexed on and I've I've just been totally unsure about and very little of the supporting materials or the interviews have really like helped elucidate this for me. So maybe you've got something. I'm still totally unclear as to the relationship between Lynch and Mark Frost in terms of his influence on the show, exactly what he brought to the table in terms of how uh, this season was constructed and sort of where, where to draw the line between a Lynch idea and a, and a Frost idea. And as, as someone who's a fan of, of, of Lynch as well as a storyteller in your own right, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about sort of what separates a, a Lynch script or story or, or idea from a, from a Lynch and Frost idea or a Frost idea. I, I'm, I really... I'm as in the dark as you about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid. Um, but but I would say that Lynch is Lynch is very literary. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's he's he's. I, I understand in interviews he's paid tribute to to Kafka, and you can clearly see like a massive massive influence of of Kafka on his uh, on his whole over, I mean, from as early as, as a razor head onwards, I mean, that character more or less could be Kafka, this kind of, you know, lowly pencil pusher who gets kind of sacrificed. So I, I, I don't know, I just think it's a very, you know, I mentioned Joyce, so there's, we could think of a figure like Alan Rob Grier and the whole nouveau roman from France, you know, the way narratives works in kind of embedded non-linear ways. In those, I, I don't know if I don't know if these are direct influences on on Lynch, but they're definitely very close kind of literary parallels. Um, so I, I don't know with Lynch that the, the kind of borders between visual art, cinema, yeah. literature just start to kind of dissolve. Virtually the first scene in The Return after the Red Room stuff is is Jacoby as Amp basically remaking a Marcel Duchamp work with with the shovels 
right? He's, he's making this work called um, In Advance of a Broken Arm, in which Duchamp hoists shovels onto a machinery. I mean, that's exactly yeah. what what Jacoby is doing. And, and, and as Dennis points out in his book, um, Duchamp's Eton Donne, which is also about a kind of a waterfall and a murdered woman, was installed in Philadelphia when Lynch was 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 young and living there, and we could think of the bride's laid bed by her bachelors, which which could be describing the whole plot, you know, the whole Laura Palmer and her mold. Yeah. Just wonder if the Lynch Frost um, question could be, if there could be any clues in in the books, you know, the sort of the, yes. the sexual stuff, the, which I I confess I could not get very far into. I read some of them, the secret uh, the secret history is that the first one uh, that yes, came out yeah. before. Before my understanding is that Lynch didn't read any of that. Is that true? I believe so. Yeah. Lynch has also said that he never read the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer that you know Jennifer Lynch wrote. Even though I think the the sort of the portrayal of Laura in Firewalk with Me is pretty consistent with with the one in that um, in in that book. Um, but I you know I wonder if that there's a clue there as to like what what Frost brings to the table based on the details that are in those books. Well, and there's also a sense there as well with the, with the final dossier, which is why I have been I have been very resistant to reading the final dossier. I'm not sure I'm going to, but I think Frost, particularly in those books, I think serves um, maybe one thread of the Twin Peaks fandom, which is the fandom that is very interested in the kind of puzzle solving, clue collecting kind of work of the show. Which you know, I think Dennis, you've talked about this as well that the show alternately kind of promotes that sort of response to it and, and, and allows it and teases it. And then on the other hand, really is very withholding and kind of shuts it down. And, you know, maybe that tension between the two modes is, is part of what makes the show so fascinating. And what I think I am resistant to in the kind of secret history uh, of Twin Peaks and the final dossier book is that you don't have that tension. Instead, you have a more like, oh, no, there is a puzzle and it can be solved and there are clues here. And my understanding is that the final dossier sort of goes so far as to kind of say this is this is what the ending of the show meant. And I am I'm not happy about that. And I don't like that. And I think it's very much sort of against the ethos of of the return and of, of Lynch's practice. And so I I simply am not going to read them, I think. But I know that that maybe marks me as a minority of the Twin Peaks fan. I, I don't know. I feel the same way. Yeah. Personally, I feel like my issue and that I don't think that I'm going to get this resolved in the over the course of this recording is I feel like I understand what Lynch brings to the table and I feel like I understand what Frost brings to the table. What I don't understand is when Lynch and Frost sit in rooms for weeks at a time writing this together, what that's actually like <laughs> and like how they how the the exchange of ideas works and where the compromise points are and like what what that alchemy together looks and feels like and I, I mean i guess the end result is just what you see i just my this goes back to our last podcast where i wish i could have just been a fly on the wall while they were writing this figuring out where the midpoints between them are because they they really do seem to be such such disparate forces when you examine them separately because i think one of the ways that we we have been dealing with the frost stuff on the show uh, on the lodgers in the past is you know, maybe attributing some of the more overtly political elements of the show, particularly the kind of uh, content elements of, um, uh, you know, the character of Jacoby having become this sort of Alex Jones uh, right wing ranter <laughs> podcaster figure. Uh, 
as maybe aligning with uh, Frost's kind of more obvious uh, concerns and sensibilities and the things that he talks about on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I find this a really interesting question. I think, uh, Dennis, I'd be particularly interested to hear from you because I know you you write in um, The Man from Another Place about this question of Lynch's politics and, you know, his, his flirtation in the past with kind of being an outright Republican and then that sort of shifting maybe. And, you know, from my perspective, I, I have a hard time uh, even aligning the idea of this history of Lynch uh, as sort of someone who kind of aligns with a certain sense of, of Republicanness in America with the production of The Return, which for me is so overtly political, and I don't think we need to say left or right or whatever, but it, but it is so overtly political from a sensibility that, that doesn't seem to have much to do with a kind of Republican idea, um, that I'd be interested if we wanted to talk more generally about the politics of the show. I mean, I think in the prompt that I sent, uh, I acknowledge that, of course, there are these kind of content political elements, but also there are these very interesting formal moves that we've already hinted at here, which is, again, the way that, that duration and the kind of strange um, openings in the narrative of the show seem to always open on to kind of socially marginal figures, right? I mean, these these women who haunt the roadhouse, the characters in the trailer park, um, you know, the character of the uh, who's selling his blood, and, um, you know, people like this, or Doris, even, uh, Sheriff Truman's wife, um, these kinds of figures that seem to very much haunt the edge of the show and any other television show would would not give the kind of space to these figures and I, i'm just i'm interested to hear what people think about this yeah um i think this is like a really key part of of, of the return i mean i wouldn't call lynch you know a social realist in any yeah. way but um i do think that this interest in kind of marginal and the marginal figures and sort of what happens on the, the fringes of, of polite society is something that's yeah. been in his work since um, the beginning. And he talks, I, I think, you know, graphically speaking, it, it's something that dates from his time in, in Philadelphia and his, I think, early exposure to, to big cities, um, to cities that were, I think, very you know crime-ridden and violent at the time. Um, and he's talked about how they were traumatic experiences for him, you know, just the seeing misery on the streets, seeing poverty, violence. Um, there's, a, there's a quote I, I, I like. Um, he, he talks about how there's, there's so much fear that it almost seems to open up into another world. And, and so there's a sense of um, these, these figures representing or is like inhabiting what he sees as these kinds of liminal spaces, sort of yeah. intraditional spaces. Now, hold on, Kate, do, do I take from your remark that you aren't selling your blood yet? Because I think that makes you an outlier. <laughs> well, give me another few years of living in the United States and who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I think my, my interest in this question was like, because we have talked a, a sort of extensively on the podcast about um, the show opening onto these sort of marginal figures and, and, and what that does for the kind of texture of the show as a whole. And this idea that the return seems to be very... I mean, maybe pessimistic is too simple of a way of describing it, but if Lynch's Uber kind of moves back and forth between these sort of extreme forms of kind of optimism and joy, and then the kind of darker, kind of um, more depressing, I guess, for lack of a better term, affects, the return very much seems to settle on the kind of darker side. I mean, you know, the, the show ends with this sort of figure of Cooper emerging as a kind of whole Cooper that seems to have the bad and the good in him. And yet it seems to very much still end on the side of the kind of negative and unsettling and upsetting. Um, so there's that element of it. But I also think there's something really fantastic about what Lynch is doing in the return with using the kind of duration that Dennis is talking about as a way to simply ask audiences to kind of spend considerable amounts of time considering people and, um, 
places and experiences that are often not given the status of dramatic event, right? Or, or not given the kind of like, these are people who don't appear on television and don't appear, I mean, film maybe a little bit, but don't appear in the kind of general visual culture uh, in, an, in an obvious way very often. And I think it's, I think there's a political movie, even just formally in what Lynch is doing by kind of elevating this sort of these times and spaces that are not considered very special or they're usually considered background or something you would cut out. Lynch is instead making them the main event often. And I, I think that's a really interesting move. And I think it's been, uh, it's been interesting to see people kind of grapple with that and, and people sort of writing this off as Lynch, um, you know, torturing audiences by making everything quote slow or whatever, I think is a really unfortunate misreading of what's going on here. Um, but anyway, so I, but uh, Tom, do you have anything you want to add to, to what we've been, talking about here sure i mean lynch's politics are kind of really strange and complex because you could you could see him you know see it as a completely republican sensibility from the white picket fences of you know blue velvet onwards and at the same time it's 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 the opposite as well i mean it's looking at at everything that that has excluded and and in the return we see a preoccupation with precarious low-wage employment and opium addiction and people selling their bloods and and as you say you know shifting the attention onto someone vacuum cleaning a floor for seven minutes um is 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 kind of radical i mean it's like east german communist filmmaking from the 60s or something (laughs) or a harren farocchi film where you see an assembly line worker and 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 so I, it's just, it, it, it's kind of complex. And then, I mean, over, I, I guess he's just trying to work out the, the state of affairs that, that we're in yeah. and, and whether there is some giant kind of machinery at the center of which there is a control room, yeah, which can be somehow penetrated and um, grasped and understood and maybe even changed. That would be the political move. Or if, on the other hand, it's all just kind of random, you know, you get that amazing scene where 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 Bobby the cop and 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 his ex, you know estranged um, uh, partner and 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 their teenage daughter are kind of trying to work everything out, and then just a random bullet randomly comes into the diner, and then and then behind the car from which that bullet comes, there's a there's another even randomer vehicle with with yeah. a possessed teenager vomiting and. And I think this has some bearing on on the final episode because, I mean, it reminds me of Thomas Pynchon, you know, this sensibility of, you know, is America a giant conspiracy run by the forces of capital and evil? (laughs) Or is it just random shit, you know, that just kind of doesn't really have much of anything connecting it? And and, and this is the, you know, this is what I think, these are the two versions that we're presented with at the end. I mean, Cooper's kind of, he takes Laura, who's maybe not Laura, but Carrie Page, back to her house. And, you know, we're in a kind of disenchanted world in which none of this ever happened. And then there's this kind of existential moment when she looks at the house and thinks, well, did it happen or didn't it happen? And, you know, is is there this horrific but kind of rather beautiful universe? Or is it just just nothing, just contemporary disconnected life? And And then her scream is a kind of affirmation in a way. It reminds me of William Faulkner's, you know, between pain and nothing, I will choose pain. She she chooses pain. It's what Donna Haraway calls sticking with the problem. She chooses to to stay with the with the problem rather than. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting reading of that ending, Tom. I had not necessarily thought about it that way, but that's really fantastic. I like that a lot, actually. What you've described is, you know, this this 
so eloquently as the world of the return is it's also it's really antithetical to the world of Twin Peaks as we knew it 20 27 years ago I mean like that was you know there was something very kind of nostalgic and retro about the original setting of Twin Peaks the original world of Twin Peaks it was you know um, it was a very cozy sort of small town USA environment and I think what the the, the, the world that we see in the return is it's I think is much more apt to the contemporary moment um, you know, he's sort of expanded it's uh, the, the universe of, of Twin Peaks, but it's um, in some ways, I think it's, uh, it's not just bleaker, but this is an emptier, blander world. I mean, so much of it takes place in, you know, the suburban subdivisions and the um, and, and these anonymous office buildings and hotels. Um, I, it strikes me as, as to come back to, again to like the, one of our original points, like a really contemporary portrait of America. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I think both Tom and, and Dennis there, you guys were both hitting on something that I think, Tom, particularly, your, your way of breaking this down, this question of, of control uh, versus the, this sort of conspiracy control angle on the other hand, on one hand is an option, and on the other option is sort of nothing and a complete kind of lack of, of meaning and connection. I think this does a really good job at getting at one of the kind of overall uh, trends of the return, which I've been fascinating with. And I... For me, it organizes itself around this idea of, um, of surveillance, the kind of theme of surveillance that's been so prevalent in The Return. And I've been fascinated, too. I haven't seen a lot of people picking up on this or writing about it so much, despite how present it is in the show. I mean, from the very earliest scenes, you have characters constantly kind of looking up uh, in rooms to see if there's cameras or kind of asking if they're being recorded or listening in or uh, Evil Coop's sort of ability to kind of tell what surveillance is on him and control surveillance. And um, I mean, this is a regular theme in the show. And I, I think... I haven't, I don't think I've figured it out yet exactly, but I think one of the things I've been trying to think about with it is that in the return, compared to something like Lost Highway, where in Lost Highway, uh, you have the, the couple being recorded, they're being recorded in their house and these tapes are being sent to them. I think what's so frightening about Lost Highway, you know, it's not just that these recordings are sort of impossible, but it's also that there seems to be a kind of specific force behind them, right? A force that is all knowing and sort of is in control of the situation. Whereas in The Return, I think what's so frightening about the way surveillance works is that, like you were describing there, Tom, I don't get the sense that Lynch thinks there is a sort of ultimate control room behind this. I mean, I think what's being dramatized is that the surveillance is just sort of pervasive. It's just everywhere. It's kind of become its own form of experience, its own kind of condition for modern life. It doesn't necessarily lead back to kind of an intelligence behind it. It's just everything which I think is terrifying. I, I don't know. I, does that spark anything for people? The one thing I wanted to, to mention is, you know, we were talking about chaos versus order, conspiracy versus, uh, you know, arbitrary, arbitrariness, chaos again. Um, I kept thinking about Philip Jeffries and how like so much of the first three quarters of the season is, oh, this is about Philip Jeffries. This goes back to Philip Jeffries. This is all goes back to when this was assigned to Philip Jeffries and we see the footage of Bowie again. And then when we finally see Philip Jeffries, he's a big whistle. <laughs> um, I mean, for lack of a better, he's a large tea kettle. Um, why is he a large tea kettle? Who knows? I mean, the real answer is because, you know, Bowie was not available yeah. or was unwilling or whatever. But, you know, in the, in the context of the show, he's a big whistle. Why? Because, I don't know, here's the next episode. I think maybe that will tell us what, uh, you know, I think that ties into your answer, Kate, about how, you know, the, the surveillance is just everywhere. And it makes me think also about how we were talking uh, many moons ago now about the representation of media on the show and how it's, it, it is, it does feel contemporary um, and it feels more all-encompassing than previous Lynch works. 
And that makes me think about uh, Jacoby and Dr. Amp, where mm-hmm. he's it's, he's essentially a podcaster, yeah. um, which, you know, represent, et cetera. Uh, but also, <laughs> like, he, he turns the surveillance on himself. Like, yeah. he, he you know, it's like, you know, the ultimate sort of generically anti-authoritarian uh, you know, authoritarian act of, oh, you're filming me? Well, I'm going to film myself and I'm going to use that constant surveillance as a way to to build up a hashtag resistance. Yeah. Um, and which... Again, I, we're, we're confusing whether or not he's on the left or right wing. And I think there's really no way to know that. He's just kind of gen- generically anti-authoritarian. Yeah. Um, but that would be, would, would, would be um, Jerry, right? The mad uh, yeah. pothead Jerry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the horrible kind of killing. He blames his binoculars, bad binoculars. And then he gets <laughs> the cops to call up Ben and say his binoculars just killed someone. And in a way, he's kind of right i mean it's it's almost like the surveillance system itself is is the agent not not the people who look yeah. trust the network itself that that, that is the, the character almost like for like the um the giant uh sort of impossible surveillance screen in the space in i think they're in montana or something when when evil coop goes to the kind of arm wrestle uh club of of evil guys there um and you have this insanely huge kind of surveillance screen on a wall. And, and at certain points, the, the surveillance screen is sort of doing these kind of impossible cut-ins, like close-ups of people's faces that, of course, isn't, aren't possible with that form of technology. But I think it really does emphasize, again, this idea that, yes, it is kind of its own agent. It's sort of, particularly visually, I mean, in the frame, the surveillance often becomes a kind of dominating presence, like in the Mitchum Brothers uh, casino, right? I mean, this this insane wall of kind of surveillance images is crazy. And, and not to mention what seems to be and then isn't actually the inciting incident of the season, which is the the security guards yeah. watching the big the big surveillance box, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for lack of a better term, which you know again s- seems to be extremely central and then actually is completely tertiary. Yeah, but then the place where the gods live is is an obs- observatory, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's the place from which we observe, from which we we look. I mean, it or, or it's somewhere between an observatory and a giant power plant. And I mean, maybe this. <laughs> Maybe the steam kettle is a kind of analog version of electricity, which which mm. is so important in this show. I mean, electricity is is the network. It, it's the medium of pulses and flows and connections. And when Cooper kind of towards the very end enters, you know, the final decisive scene, he goes through the door in the power in the electricity rooms of the power plant, right? Yeah. Or, uh, I, I I think it. Yeah, I, I think there is there is um. There is a kind of structure to it, and it's something to do with the circuit of of surveillance and power and and kind mm. of discharge. <laughs> I had another question sort of explicitly aimed at Dennis, although anyone's free to answer. In Man from Another Place, sort of necessarily by, you know, virtue of when it was written, you wrote about Inland Empire, um, and you, you, you talked about how it was thought of as kind of a culminating work, although at the end of the book you do sort of tease uh, Twin Peaks' return. And of course, that subject has has you know gotten sparked up again as a, a, as a result of the return. And I was curious a, about um, how you conceive of you know uh, Inland Empire as culminating work versus the return as culmin- as a, as a culminating work, and sort of where what, what what's changed in between. Yeah, I think. I think the return is, I think, even more so a culminating work in, in in a very literal sense. I think it's an all-encompassing. It's almost a retrospective kind of work, you know, in which I think Lynch very self-consciously uh, puts in 
many aspects of his work, like dating from his early shorts. You have the sort of like uh, the very primitive sort of movie magic quality of his mm. um, handcrafted early shorts. You have a lot of the sort of um, like the sort of slow motion comedy of Eraserhead, um, the sort of like mechanical cosmology. Um, you have a lot of his interest in, in, in music, a lot of his visual art. I think the sort of the, the, the extreme violence in The Return is more reminiscent to me of his paintings than of any of his mm. other films. You know, the sort of body horror and the tactility. Um, and of course, I think it's, you know, it also takes even further this, the concerns, the themes of his last, you know, this, this um, Lost Highway, Mahone Drive, Inland Empire, these sort of like doppelganger parallel world films. Yeah, so I do think um, I do think the return is 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 a true culminating work. I think it's a summation. You know, I think it's it's different from in from Inland. I think just, again, just to come back to my point about this, the 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 scale of it. You know, it's that was that seemed at the time like 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 an epic work, something that he lived yeah. with. You know, and 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 developed over a period of years. But this is, I think, on 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 a whole other level. This was just a question that occurred to me halfway through doing research for this and kind of uh, having it dawn on me that, that both Dennis and Tom are, uh, you know, uh, more connected to the art world uh, than either Simon or, uh, Simon or I are. And that, that's not necessarily a kind of angle that we've talked about on the podcast uh, so much. I mean, we've talked maybe a little bit about Lynch's art here and there. But, you know, for me, I think this, this question occurred to me when I was thinking about this debate between television uh, critics and film critics and where Twin Peaks belongs. And, um, you know, someone recently writing on Twitter talked about, you know, maybe an important point in this sort of TV versus film debate for the return is the fact that television critics on mass, I mean, with the exception of people like Matt Soller-Zeitz and stuff, television critics on mass, you know, haven't been very quick to embrace the return. I mean, television critics have haven't really given it nearly the same kind of due that film critics have, right? I mean, film critics are pretty universal in kind of claiming that this is a sort of major, major um, event in in kind of cinema history. This is a really big deal. Whereas there are a lot of television critics that maybe haven't even watched the whole thing, which is shocking to me. Uh, but anyway, for me, I just was wondering, uh, Tom and, and Dennis, if you guys have a sense, uh, being part of this sort of other community of, of uh, artists and art makers and art critics, how the return is kind of playing out there. I mean, I know the Art Forum has been running recaps, and Dennis, you've written a, a piece for this on Art Forum, and, and Tom, even you were talking about the show's literal connections to kind of Duchamp pieces and art pieces. I mean, is the return kind of having um, a, a sort of role there? Are people taking it up in the art world and talking about it? Well, my friends who are artists are kind of obsessed. I mean, they've yeah. been getting at three in the morning just to, just to watch it <laughs> the moment it's available. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it seems to me this is this is where the the kind of main audience for, for Lynch is. But but I mean, I find this is where the main audience for my work is as well is in the art <laughs> where, where the action is in, in, in culture in in, uh, in Europe, at least. I think everybody, almost everybody I know is obsessed with Twin Peaks and whether they're in, you know, in the art or the film world all summer. Um, the question about television, I mean, I actually don't think this really has very much of a connection to anything else that's yeah. on television. I mean, I don't think it obeys any of the rules of, of so-called prestige television or quality television. Um, it doesn't even strike me as an especially, you know, you know the, the structure isn't even especially episodic, um, you know, hour, hour by hour. Um, and I, but all that said, I don't know that it has much of a relationship to what's going on in film either. Mm. I think the only things I can think of are, you know, 
other works that were made by filmmakers for television, like maybe like Jacques Rivette's Out One or, or Fassbinder's, you know, television series like Eight Hours Another Day and Berlin Alexander Platz. I mean, those, those seem to be like the only um, parallels for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I had thought about in, in relation to this art, art world question that I think backs up your point, Dan, is that there is maybe there isn't as much of a relationship between the return and kind of contemporary film as one might think. And for me, this was the way people reacted to the use of, of CGI in the show, that there was this kind of even across both television and film writing, there was a kind of not everybody reacted this way, but there were at least a few critics that expressed sort of, you know, dismay or that they were unhappy with the way CG was being used, that it was sort of cheesy and it was drawing attention to itself and it was ugly. And, you know, I mean, I, I, obviously we on the podcast don't agree with that. And I think Lynch is, is very much in, in kind of perfect control of how he is using CG. It's never a mistake. It's, it's very purposeful. And I mean, it was interesting thinking about how I actually think that that kind of use of CG might might really find a better reception again in, in the art world, like among artists, where I think there is a really kind of um, large spread sort of interest in an exploration of how you can use sort of digital culture and digital imagery um, in these kind of very, uh, I, I don't know, overt ways, like ways that aren't meant to hide themselves under a kind of guise of realism or something. And, and I think... Yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder if there's been any responses uh, writing-wise there. And I don't think any of us necessarily need to have an answer to that question. This is just something I've been thinking about. I mean, personally, as someone who probably watches more television than any, probably everyone else on this podcast combined, um, it's something that I'm going to be interested in tracking over the next while. I mean, I know that uh, people like Damon Lindelof have expressed, I mean, and he's actually in the special features of the Return box set, Um have expressed, you know, admiration for Lynch and Twin Peaks. And I, I know that it's, it is being watched by creatives in the TV world. And I will be curious to see if any of Lynch's sort of bolder moves that we're not currently seeing reproduced. I mean, at the time that, that, you know, I've sort of made this point already, but at the, at the time that the original season aired, there wasn't anything else on like it on TV either. Um, mind you, it was watched by like a hundred times more people than, than the return was as many things were at the time yeah. um so it, it's difficult to say and you know the the world of television production is so much more fragmented now there's you know probably a hundred times as many series being produced for one one hundredth the audience respectively uh so it, it it's it's unlikely that we're going to see the kind of tidal influence that twin peaks had over its tv landscape um we're probably not going to see that kind of kind of influence happen with the return and other uh series but I would be surprised if we didn't see any change. I would be surprised if we didn't see any uh, creative showrunners, executive producers, writers, what have you. Um, I'd be surprised if we didn't see any of them kind of take more experiments with form and structure and tone and what's possible with these sort of more overt effects, like you were saying, Kate, um, in, in future. But, you know, I've been wrong before. Dennis, I have wanted to ask you a question about a point that you've made about the finale in the past. I've wanted to ask this for a little while, because um, it's been both your Art Forum piece and, and your uh, film comment uh, podcast with Violet Luca. So in talking about the ending of the finale, I think you picked up on the fact that, that so many people, ourselves included on the podcast here, uh, talk about the finale of the show as very much participating in Lynch's... Um, you know, theme and his fascination with this idea of, of both trying to rewrite the past, but then the kind of impossibility of being able to rewrite the past. The idea of, you know, his work is often kind of backward looking, and yet there's a sort of futility in that. And I thought you had a very different reading of this ending, which was the idea that actually what's so unusual about the ending of The Return 
and what marks it out in Lynch's kind of oeuvre is the fact that, you know, Cooper actually succeeds in rewriting the past. It's not just that he tries and he fails. I mean, he doesn't do it exactly as he would like, right? I mean, this idea of saving Laura is not, doesn't play out directly. But he does succeed in doing something, and that this sort of, like, is part of what is so terrifying about the ending of The Return. Um, and I think we probably maybe have larger points we want to make about the ending here, but I just wanted to kind of start us off by asking you about, about that, about how you could elaborate on that at all. Sure. I mean, I, I think I was just trying to, you know, figure out why the ending was so chilling, um, you know, as I experienced it, and, and, and so terrifying, I mean, maybe more terrifying than anything in, in all of Lynch, which is saying something. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it's, I think it's not lost on anyone that this, this is a recurring theme in Lynch's works. It's the theme in Lost Highway, in Mulholland Drive. These are all films about a desire to, to rewrite history, to, to do things over. And they're all failures. I mean, they are, you know, they're all, they're, they're attempts at reenactment that fail. Um, and in the return, I think he allows Cooper to succeed. And I think he, you know, did. I think the end, it ends, I think it ends with a question. It's like really posing this question of like, what does it mean to succeed in this, this, um, what has, you know, what is always a futile desire, what, what, what typically in, in other Lynch films, in, in almost any other, uh, in, in so much of film and literature, this is, this is, this is something that fails. You cannot rewrite the past. And here, I think he, in allowing Cooper to, to do it, um, I think that's what's different here, and I think that's what's. Um, I'm I'm still trying to figure out exactly what you know what 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 this move means, um, but that struck me as a key difference between the return and say Lost Highway, Mahone Drive, and also in Vertigo, which I think is sort of like where mm. this is a film that Lynch has been riffing on like endlessly. I mean, the, the Vertigo perhaps being sort of the ultimate film about a failed reenactment. Although the other movie that seemed to be really influential here was, was John Coxo's Orphe. Yes. I mean, especially with the radio transmissions, which is so central to that film and, and to the return in episode eight. Um, and, and, and here, um, well, in, in Cocteau's film, there's also a kind of successful rewind and erasure of the past so that Eurydice hasn't died. And, and Orpheus and Eurydice are kind of back in their house at the end. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in Cocteau's original play for that, the angels that have brought that about say we had to leave them in their shit. <laughs> 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 the immortals line on that, that kind of real everyday life is even more of a horror than, than, than the metaphysics of heaven and hell and uh, black lodges and white lodges and, <laughs> and, and pure evil. I mean, this, this, it's almost like, like at the end, end of Inland Empire, Nikki walks beyond the, end of the end of, beyond the end of the film. She kind of walks out of the film and then comes back around to watch the film in the cinema, but we're yeah. not in the film anymore. And I feel like a similar thing happens here. I mean, it's like, it's like they're going back and visiting the set of Twin Peaks, but it's not Twin Peaks anymore. It's just mm. nowhere. It's just somewhere in America that's somewhere that's nowhere. It's like one of Mark Orge's non-spaces. And and then she looks at the house and, you know, is it the Chalfont Tremond house or is it, and what does Chalfont Tremond even mean? Are, are these hierophants of, of hell or is, is this just the name of a realtor and the previous owner? And, <laughs> You know, and, and then and then she screams and, and what does that scream mean? I mean it, it, it could be a desire to return to the to the kind of to the narrative, to the fiction, to the mythological structure that's been lost. 
Mm. Or it could be just, I mean, like in uh, Firewalk With Me, which is more of a kind of social realist film, but but in a way, um, as one of the characters says, you know, what what's what's more terrifying that somebody, you know, that there is evil in the world or that many fathers rape their daughters behind yeah. suburban curtains. <laughs> I mean, th- there's nothing mythical or mystical about that, but it's it's kind of screamworthy as well. So I, I don't know, I just think it plays out in all kind of ways. The only response to which is is a scream. That makes me think of the scene where Bobby, I think it's in the fourth episode, um, when he sees Laura's picture and he's, you know, Bobby has lived his life. He's, he's moved on. He's become a cop. And it seems like his life is full of normal things that are just kind of annoying. Um, like, you know, his his ex moving on to someone else and just having a troublesome daughter and all that. And then he gets sucked back into the world of Laura Palmer for a moment and the, and the music swells and you have that question again. Well, is it is it better to be uh, is, is it better in that world of the banal problems or, or is it better in the world of the of the outsized uh, sort of bigger than life problems? And he sort of briefly gets he's so upset by the prospect of being sucked back into that other less banal universe. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems like that the show kind of ultimately throws its hands up and, and says, well, they're, they're both pretty awful. <laughs> um, yeah. I, there, I, there's a lot in, in here that we could talk about. I think I, I wanted to pick up on uh, Tom's mention of the, of the film Orfe, which we haven't mentioned on the podcast here, uh, even though it is one of my absolute favorite films and I love it. And any, any listener here who hasn't found it, you should definitely go and find uh, the 1950 film Orfeo by Jean Cocteau because it's fabulous and it has really interesting connections with The Return. And I think one of the more obvious uh, connections there is the fact that in, in Orfeo and in The Return, this, this desire for the ability to kind of reverse time or go back in time is played out at both the local and the global level, right? I mean, you have this kind of reversal of the literal image, right? I mean, the return is kind of littered with these sequences where for no reason that is discernible within the kind of narrative structure or, or anything, we just have images running backwards. I mean, characters sort of blink backwards, things happen backwards, and it's all very subtle, right? It seems to have moved beyond the confines of the Red Room as existed in the early show. Uh, now in to just banal life. Things move backwards here all the time. And this kind of plays really interestingly into the kind of larger um, theme that emerges at the end, right? Which is Cooper's desire to be able to undo this thing that has happened to Laura that set the whole universe in motion in the first place. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think in, in Orfe, there's a really interesting sense in which that is playing with kind of larger themes of, of history in that moment in French culture, right? I mean, it's it's the post-war, it's after the occupation, it's after France's involvement in the Holocaust, all of these things. And, and so much of the film takes place in the kind of bombed out ruins of a military academy. And this sense of looking backwards has a very, I think, as well as a personal sense, it also, it also has a very political sense. Um, you know, this wish to kind of maybe be able to undo France's role in the, in the last 20 years. And I, the reason I bring this up is just because I'm again kind of fascinated with, with how that sensibility plays out in the return maybe against something like the other theme of the show which has been this sort of radically anti-nostalgic kind of stance that it takes i mean i think there is something so interesting in the tension that lynch uh, and and everyone else bring up here in the sense of the show both being very backward looking very concerned with the past very focused on the past and at the same time 
I mean, maybe not being dismissive of a kind of nostalgic view, but but being very overtly set against nostalgia, right? I mean, nostalgia is here a very bad thing in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I think in the most obvious um, sense, we have the sequence with Audrey uh, doing the amazing dance in the Roadhouse, right? We have Audrey's dance, which is the first time the show kind of, that the return acknowledges the presence of this sort of desire for nostalgia in a very extreme way. Not it, it acknowledges that presence throughout, but the way the show kind of takes it on itself. And we have Audrey performing this dance and referencing the old show. And that, of course, just pre, like all that does is prefigure this sort of horrifying psychotic break that Audrey sort of breaks down. And so anyway, this is a long way of saying I'm just I'm fascinated by this question of both the show being very backward looking and focused on the past, but at the same time being radically anti-nostalgic seems to me to be hard to reconcile or something. I guess Lynch's take on time is is kind of archaeological right he's almost like he's kind of like a media theorist like he's doing an archaeology of the present moment so if we see that in media terms you know to understand network digital culture he looks to cinema and to television and before that to radio and before that to silent film um and all these things are kind of you know they're like layers of troy or or something so so this is the way that he's able to kind of bring the past into the present without it being nostalgic um you know and make it contemporary does that make sense yeah yeah yeah. well i uh, as i was reading i was sort of scanning back through uh bits of dennis's book and i was reminded of, of um some of the some of the short work that lynch was doing in the in the 90s and it's it's stunning to think about how Lynch has worked in every medium from you know 1890s uh, you know film stock where he's got a, you know five shots in a minute to tell a story which he tells which he decides to tell in the in like the most elliptical way possible given the constraints um, all the way up to now where he's working in you know the most cutting edge cutting edge to the extent that you know contemporary audiences might even find it alienating um, in terms you know cutting edge effects and you know video video methods as well as as streaming like i really can't think of another filmmaker who has uh who has had a, a sort of a, an equal level of interest and engagement in um in media forms and delivery devices over the you know from over the course of a century um so i, I hadn't really pieced that together in terms of the of the archaeological aspect that tom mentioned before but uh, i think it's very present in everything he's done yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I don't think I figured any of this out necessarily, but I do think that that's a good way of kind of uh, differentiating this question of like looking towards the past in an archaeological sense, in the sense of like the past is actually present, right? I mean, the past exists in these kind of like markers, these hauntings, maybe in the sort of Lynchian terminology. But um, yeah, the, the the media, the remnants that it exists now, and that that's a different relation to the past than nostalgia for sure. I think haunting is really, really, really on it. I think I think you've hit on something really. Im- important there i mean the the whole you know if we put it in a psychoanalytic kind of framework i mean the whole thing is about loss it's about lack it's about uh, mourning you know and melancholia <laughs> and and um and and this idea of, of of being haunted i mean look lots of media theorists talk about you know i mean they guess from derrida i guess the idea of hauntology of of, of a kind of cryptology of of media is a, is a, is a kind of haunting. It, 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 it's, it's a, it's a sepulcher. It's a kind of, you know, the archive is a place where everything dead kind of persists and, and haunts us. And I guess, and that said, you know, how does Laura Palmer exist? She exists as a photo. Mm. I mean, she, she, she is media or she exists as video images in, in, uh, you know, in the first series or, or as, um, 
tape recordings. Um, so, so I, I guess that would kind of, you know, thinking of, of lack and mourning and these processes and, and, yeah. you know, psychic haunting might kind of bring, bring quite a few of these considerations about media and kind of plot and everything into alignment and nostalgia. Yeah. And there's something fascinating in there too, as well about the idea of, um, uh, melancholia uh, linking up to a certain kind of repetition, right? I mean, the temporal repetition, the idea of, of melancholia is differentiated from mourning in the sense that melancholia is the inability to get past the repetition of the trauma, right? It's the fact that the, the kind of trauma and the pain simply repeats and repeats and repeats. Um, and, and I think the return is doing something so fascinating with the idea of dramatizing the difference between, you know, repetition as something that seems to be moving time forward, right? I mean, things seem to be happening. And yet we're, we're repeatedly reminded that actually nothing has changed. And, and actually, there hasn't been any kind of progressive movement. And this is most obvious in the um, Audrey-Charlie sequences, right, where time seems to be moving, and yet it obviously isn't. Uh, and this is a very kind of painful construct, right? This is mourning that hasn't been incorporated. This is mourning that hasn't been moved beyond yet. Um, which I, So I think that's super important, Tom, for sure. Yeah, and it's moved to a kind of psychotic state. I mean, yeah. the, the baseline would just be Audrey in the white room, just going, what, what, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> and all of this is the kind of psychotic, just replay in, in all the senses of that word, replay, you know, glitch and replay of, of, of that stuck moment. And you can see almost all the characters and the whole universe of the returners and America itself as, as kind of stuck in this moment of traumatic replay because something yes. has been lost and, can, and that loss cannot be overcome. Yeah. Well, now that we've mentioned um, archives, media, dead things, things <laughs> that are things that are over, that are that are done, uh, I, I think that's probably a, a, as good a segue as we're going to get to start wrapping up this conversation and, by extension, this podcast, leaving it to be uh, to be shelved away as another dead thing. Um, <laughs> but before we do that, I wanted to ask you, Dennis, since we're talking about um, sort of archiving retrospective and things like that, as one of the sorry if you're embarrassed by this, but as perhaps the preeminent sort of Lynch uh, scholar out there, you've got an entire tab of your personal website devoted to David Lynch. <laughs> I couldn't help but notice. Um, what are your plans in terms of incorporating uh, the return into, into your scholarship? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I've uh, I, I wrote a fairly short piece on 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 the return for Art Forum, which I, I think I you know, barely scratched the surface. Um, but I. Yeah, I think I, 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 if there is occasion to update the book, I, I, I probably will. Yes, that's a, that's the best answer we could have gotten to that question. That's fabulous. I just wanted to say I really like you know that that last point that you um that you were you were all making about this the sense of being stuck because rewatching it, you know, I just sort of had it on just several episodes in in in, in sort of in the background yesterday, and just the abiding impression. I got from just ha- watching some of these episodes again is, is stillness that there is such a stillness to to and i think the way in which the return resists this like forward momentum that is you know typically mandated by 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 narrative by by television certainly uh is, is quite remarkable i don't really watch a lot of contemporary television um i ended up rewatching or watching one of the new episodes of the x-files with with in-laws over christmas i'm so and sorry it was it, I know it was horrible and I won't continue. That will not be happening again. But um, all just to say that I think it's 
once you've kind of been tuned in to the way that the return works and like it's its temporalities, its way of presenting the world, it's actually very difficult to then go back to seeing what what sort of passes for kind of like normal temporal structures in a lot of other media, right? These sort of assault of editing patterns and these like extreme kind of manipulations of attention, you know, compared to what's going on in the return, it they are so obvious and transparent and like unpleasant. I mean, the return is very much existing in, in a really different kind of place. And um, I, I really hope that, you know, the show goes on to have this life where, where more and more people find it and are kind of able to appreciate that and really get into it because I think it is such a, a rich space. I mean, you know, we've said that a hundred times on this show, but it is such a rich space. I just, I hope it continues to find it's the audience it deserves. Personally, I'm still waiting for a listener to build me that app that will just, <laughs> that will just give me a, a randomizer option to just plug a random set of scenes into my ocular area <laughs> without having to load DVDs or like choose an episode, just put it on shelf for me until the end of time. Um, did, did anyone have any, any concluding remarks or I would like to add things, they things, uh, efforts, upcoming projects or, mm. uh, or, or current endeavors they'd like to plug. <laughs> I'm just, I'm vacuum cleaning my carpet really slowly. <laughs> A- actually, Tom, I, I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you, Tom, about the the post-it notes on your wall. What are those about? Because I I could see those earlier. Oh, yeah. Well, that's kind of the novel I'm working on. But Ah. I'm interested in the kind of whole history of um, automated or recorded movement from uh, Moybridge and Mary onwards to data capture studios and wind tunnels. But... um, uh, you know that's a that's a slow slow thing. Don't don't um don't hold your breath. <laughs> well, maybe maybe it'll come together around the same time that this possible fourth season of uh, of Twin Peaks may may or may not come together. <laughs> we never know. Maybe maybe we'll have to wait another twenty five years if uh, if at all. Um, I'm also not sure I ever even want that to happen. This was a perfect uh, season of television, and I don't think we need any more. I'm pretty but, sure I don't want that to happen. Actually, I don't. yeah. I don't think a fourth season. But then again, I, I thought that, you know, at first when I first heard about the, the reboot, I thought we don't really need a third season. I thought it ended, you know, I, I actually loved the previous ending mm-hmm. um, of the second season. But um, this certainly exceeded expectations. Yes, me too. I did not really, I was a little trepidatious at first, and I feel like the same about the fourth season. Not sure we need it. But then if Lynch is at the head of it, I mean, it could only sort of be amazing really so we'll see yeah, yeah. I, I think it's the fact that i that it feels like a bad idea to me that proves that it's a good idea. <laughs> that's how it seems to go with lynch tom and dennis i wanted to thank you both so much for joining us uh behind the scenes there's been a lot of uh technical garbage going on and i thank you both for being so patient with and uh, so generous i meant to say and uh that about wraps it up for us uh are you both on on twitter or reachable on social media followable no <laughs> Oh, good, good for you, Tom. That's the correct answer. But uh, but Dennis, you are on Twitter. I am, although that was like uh, I don't actually use it. But uh, yeah, I am. I am in theory on Twitter. But yes. Yeah. Do you have what is what is your handle? In well, case I, I have a Lynchian handle. Gum you like. 
Ooh, very good. The Twin Peaks handle, even. Yes. yes. Well, and I think uh, your fa- your Facebook, uh, Dennis, is is regularly updated. It tends to be about the kind of Lincoln Center programming as well, right? Yeah. Which is a good way a good way to follow. I mean, if people if people don't follow Dennis's film programming at Lincoln Center, that is an education in film in and of itself, and everyone should really just check it out. There are some really fabulous uh, films that those guys show, and and in fact, we actually didn't even mention uh, this particular credit of Dennis's in relation to Lynch. But I think one of our guests earlier mentioned this as a very important series for him was when Dennis programmed uh, the Rivette series against Lynch's films. And people still talk about that to this day. It was kind of a misty, misty eyes. So I thought we should get that on as a final mention for Dennis's work. Uh, So yeah, that was Dennis and Tom. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you all enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording and as much as I I haven't actually done it yet, but probably didn't enjoy editing, uh, mixing and all the drudgery that's associated with making a podcast. But I do it for love for you, I guess, the, the audience. I'm not really sure why I do anything, but um, in, in all seriousness, um, it's not often I get to finish a thing. So it's it's a nice, fu- warm, fuzzy feeling to get to the end of something and to be happy with it. And I'm glad everyone enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks. There's really nothing to say except thank you, Kate. Thanks to our guests and thanks for listening. Uh, I I would just add as well that um, it's and I've said this in many ways, so I won't drag it out, but that uh, it's been such a blast to be part of this. And I've had such a great time talking with Simon every week and uh, so thrilled that the show has like, you know, existed at all, let alone been this wonderful and supported uh, this kind of like critical discussion and that we've had so many amazing guests on. And we really appreciate so many people giving their time, uh, including Dennis and Tom and uh, everybody else and we hope to have chances to correspond with you in the future and you know let's all just hope that I get an academic job somewhere so maybe some time in the future I could continue to write about Twin Peaks because that's really all I want to do still like to this day <laughs> just want to write about Twin Peaks so um, yeah. but yeah and you never know Simon and I sometimes still will will podcast about other things perhaps so keep keep an ear out on the internet you may hear from us again maybe all right That's it from us. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. Uh, We can hear you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Should we, should we drop the video? So yeah. uh, Yeah. The way this will work is uh, Kate and I will record like a general show intro. Once you guys are gone, you have to deal with the, uh, yeah, Simon will um, hang up, I think, and then I'll recall do everybody, is right? Come in with a, a, a general introduction for both of you, and then we'll. Okay, I'm here. Uh, I'll have an opening question uh, for either of you to, uh, to field, okay. or hopefully both of you. Yep, perfect. And we'll, we'll roll from there. Does that sound good? <laughs> uh, perfect. Simon? No, uh, well, yeah, but I can. I, I edit, Still and I, if, if anyone says anything uh, xenophobic or. Dennis, are you there? Uh, or, or yeah. libelous. Yeah. Um, I can keep it yeah. for uh, oh. for personal use yes, yeah, and I'm not here. disseminate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just not. Uh, I, 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 uh, go ahead. The, the final dossier. Yeah, yes. yeah. We can yeah. hear you. No, I, I could. We, we could hear yeah, you. You were we you were fine that. on the recording. So uh, be, so you can keep going. The, the final dossier. Yeah. Oh no. Okay. Uh, Dennis, I'll, you can't I'll, hear I'll us. I'll do my no. best to make sure that the conversation flows without too many people talking over each other. Guys, um, I'm, I'm losing And actually, you. since I'm already talking, I might as well cut in. Um, the, we, we, do we, do we still have a Tom? I'm just checking. Oh no, is Simon? 
Yes, we can hear Dennis, you. we still are you, you still <laughs> can okay, hear us. Stop. Oh, did I should I stop that recording? Just keep going. I wonder if I wonder if he's if Dennis is using his phone and maybe it's Okay. Um the connection I'm gonna try calling everyone back and see if that resolves any more technical issues. Oh, okay, uh, Dennis, I think, went on to talk, uh, was talking oh, about... Oh, shit, um, shit, 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 Yeah, uh, wait, wait about 30 seconds. Uh, sorry. Call. I the novels, I yes, which is like, what I had wanted to ask him about, actually. Um, sorry. I wonder if we should... Should you try hanging up on Dennis and, and calling him back? Okay, uh, all right, I have no idea what happened there. Um, yeah, oh, closing that just second one. Can I just... Hey. I don't know why this is being right. so weird. It, like, yeah, went okay, rather than just... Oh, Hello. Oh, sorry, Tom. I wish the was, I had, you know, this uh, is speaking about glitches. Blunder. This is, Go of back course, to the end of this so that I can. <laughs> no. no. There we go. So that I can. Yes, excellent. Come on. Hey, yeah, well, I would leave it so Dennis, Holy shit, this is, I'm making a little bit of a technical Let's say if we get 15 perfect minutes, then you can start checking We had that, and then we, we lost you right after that. But you I, well, I, I think rather than, I um, know, oh, we lost Tom, um, continue on the same recording. <laughs> you can, like, start at a second recording, but at the same time you're playing the first recording. Uh, Dennis, how are you doing here? I'm going to hear what's going on. I actually this might be going on a limb, but I'm trying to ask you to play too slow. Did you hit me like this fire? How, how long were we talking about? Um, Not that long, right? Yeah, we can hear you. I just hung up there anyway. Is there anything else we have to cover in the outro rather than just saying, like, thanks and goodbye? Yes, you're back. Savage. Not you, Dennis. That's really true. Sure, go for it. That would be me. Cinemascope people want me to do something oh, yeah, go, again go for the next back, upcoming yeah. article, and I'm like, why won't you just let me write another thing about Twin Peaks? Did I tell you that I forgot uh, that for the last one? And you know what? Me oh, <laughs> we have a Dennis again. Oh no! No, I was like, let me do three. It'll be like a perfect trifecta, and then like every other magazine has stopped. It's a random act of Cinemascope was the only one that didn't have like a wrap-up uh, piece, but they wouldn't want me to do it. Um, okay, let's see if I press play here. We've tried I worry if I press record, it's just gonna do the same thing again. Let me let me grab Olivia to make sure I don't fuck this up. Hold on. Oh yes, we can hear you now. We lost uh, we lost you, you in the middle of random act of, and then you were gone. Yeah, um, if you like. Do you want to see? We, we lost make Tom. Uh, I just recalled everyone you. again. Um, all right, sorry, sorry, Dennis. This was, we did our intro. Hello! <laughs> we did our intro. Yay! People are back. All right. We should not have done. We should have just kept recording. Okay. But the problem is, the last time I pressed record, it just created cool. like a new one down here I, I, okay. while playing this one. So it's like, I just want to continue this recording. How do I do that?
like Simon's gonna splice these later. Okay, I'm gonna press play. It's sorry, do we have everyone? Uh, it seems like it. It oh, might right. be two separate yeah, tracks, but at least it's picking uh, up. Me, at least I the end of this one is picking so up. Than it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. All right, thanks, uh, Olivier. Anyway, okay, where were? Did you explain where um, okay, we were? All right, Kate? now we are ready to go. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, everyone, for all the all the stuff. Anyway, okay, so uh, Dennis had just finished talking about. Um, what were you talking about? Uh, right, the ending. <laughs> <laughs> 